What we need is more common sense. More common sense. We got to use plain old common sense. Breaking down the world's nonsense. About how American common sense will see us through. With the common sense of Houston. I'm just pro common sense. For Houston, from Houston. Where you talking about common sense? This is the Jimmy Barrett Show. Brought to you by ViewIn.com. Now, here's Jimmy Barrett. Hey, welcome to the show, everybody. Today is uh, this, today is Deuce Day, right? 2-22-22. It'll be 400 years before this happens again, where you have all those numbers line up that way. Where, where it's the same date, whether you are going forwards or backwards. Believe it or not, that's actually quite rare. Zero, you talk about 2-22-22. All twos. I don't know if you thought about that at all. I don't know if you have a lucky number. I've never really thought about lucky numbers. You know, I guess there's the lucky numbers people play for the lottery. I can't honestly say I've ever thought much about the number two until today. I got something cooking, so I'll let you know if it turns out to be lucky. The way it's going so far, though, I'm not thinking so. But but I don't want to I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too much on that. I saw this study, and I, I found it very interesting, is somebody who used to live, quote-unquote, up north. It is the Wall Street, 24-7 Wall Street release of the annual ranking of the nation's drunkest cities. The, these are the cities where, where people are partying hard and getting drunk. Not that I've never been drunk. Of course I have. Not Saying that with a level of pride, I'm just saying that you know, I've 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 downed my fair share of adult premium beverages in my day. Um, I don't I don't endorse drunkenness by any stretch of the imagination. That's not what this is for. But but I I found it interesting, the cities that are on the list, and I'm wondering if there's anything we can conclude by this list of top twenty cities. So let me go over. There's one. The first one I have is the anomaly. It's the one. It's the one that is not like the others. Every other one is like the others, except for this one. Number 20 is Corvallis, Oregon. Now we start, after that, we're going to start to develop a pattern. Number 19, Iowa City, Iowa. Number 18, Lincoln, Nebraska. Number 17, Milwaukee, Waukesha, Wisconsin. Number 16, Janesville, Beloit, Wisconsin. Number 15, Racine, Wisconsin. Number 14, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Number 13, Missoula, Montana. Number 12, Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Number 11, Wausau, Wisconsin. Number 10, Mankato, North Mankato, Minnesota. Number 9, Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Number 8, Ames, Iowa. Number 7, Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Number 6, La Crosse, Wisconsin. Are you noticing anything? Number five, Fargo, North Dakota. Number four, Madison, Wisconsin, home of the University of Wisconsin. Number three, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Number two, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. (laughs) And number one is Appleton, Wisconsin. Fifteen of the top 20 cities are in Wisconsin. Now, is it because beer goes so well with cheese no, probably not. Um, as I look at all these cities, every single one of them is well to the north. Even the ones that aren't Wisconsin, the precious few that aren't, there's several in Minnesota, 
and several in North Dakota. These are places where winter rages and the temperatures get frigid and people get depressed. And there's not much to do outside that doesn't involve freezing to death. Therefore, most of the activities are indoors and a lot of those activities involve drinking. These are the places where people drink the most. Notice there's not a single southern city that made the top 20. There's not a single city in Texas, not a single city in Florida. I think that tells you all you need to know. If you want to be fat and drunk, live up north. Because <laughs> that's what living up north will do to you. Although it's interesting, there's no Michigan cities in here. Uh, and Wisconsin's right next door to Michigan. Go figure. I guess the drunks didn't make it across Lake Michigan. They're all, they're all too drunk on the other side of Lake Michigan to make it over to the state of Michigan. Interesting stuff. All right, this would drive you to drink. Let me do this uh, before I run out of time here in our opening segment because this one has me, honestly, a little incensed. I actually needed to take a drink before I could even talk about this. It's a story out of California. Not that it shocks me because it is California. But it's a story about a child molester. He is now 26 years old. Oh, by the way, he's transitioning to be a female. He is sentenced by the judge as a juvenile because he committed the crime two months shy of his 18th birthday, even though he is now 26. And he is getting off super easy. Oh, and he's, he's in the juvenile detention facility for teenage girls. It was a 10-year-old girl he molested. Only now he says he's transitioning to a female. So we're going to put him in there with the girls, because after all, that's, that's the safe, logical thing to do. First of all, here's the Fox report on the light sentence this child molester received. Now, at the time of that crime, Tubbs' first name was James, and he was a couple weeks away from his 18th birthday. CCTV showed Tubbs going into that Denny's restroom and then fleeing the scene after assaulting the little girl. But Tubbs wasn't connected to the sexual assault until being arrested for another crime in 2019. And prosecutors say Tubbs began identifying as female after being taken into custody. And despite having multiple violent crimes on record already, Gascon refused to prosecute Tubbs as an adult. And just last month, a judge sentenced Tubbs to serve two years in a juvie detention facility at age 26. And get this, Tubbs will not have to register as a sex offender. Will not have to register as a sex offender. Provided, of course, he doesn't commit another sex offense while he's in there. Oh, by the way, we have a telephone conversation. This is the sex offender on the phone with his father, bragging about how he's getting off so easy. Don't worry about it. It's a strike. But they're gonna plead, I'm gonna plead out to him, I'm gonna plead guilty. They're gonna stick me on probation, and it's gonna be dropped, it's gonna be done. Done. I won't have to register once or nothing. For an offender, you don't have to register? I won't have to do none of that. So what are they gonna do to you then? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, no. They're not gonna do nothing. Not a damn thing. Now, this is California, but it's happening in other places. Maybe not as egregious as this. Can we all agree that you don't sentence a sex offender to two years probation in the same facility as you would keep the sex of a child that this guy's already molested? I mean, what am I missing here? Quick little break. Back with more in a moment. Jimmy Barrett Show, AM 950 KPRC. You know, I I continue to amaze myself at, at how often I'm talking about Canada. 
And and I really start to think of something. Actually, I, I give Jesse Waters all the credit in the world. He made me think of something as it relates to um, you know comparing Canada and the United States because we have a tendency to take a look, especially those of us who who don't live that close to Canada or spend that much time in Canada. We have a tendency to take a look at what's going on in Canada. And not to say it couldn't happen here. In fact, I'm pretty sure Biden would love to see what happens there happen here. But we're not essentially the same country. We are a different breed in the United States. We were the revolutionaries. The Canadians were not. They stayed with the British Commonwealth. They, they, um, they, are, they are much more passive. They are much more inclined to allow the ruling class to tell them what to do. It's more in their DNA, Jesse Waters says, and I'll share a cup from him in a couple of minutes. But that makes sense. It really does. I mean, their former government is different. Their laws are different. They don't have a president. They have a prime minister. Um, they have what's the equivalent of governors, but they have a different set of powers as it relates to their province versus relating to the country itself. It is a big, huge, sprawling country with a different set of rules. So what happens there does not necessarily translate to what's going to happen here. But what is pretty clear is that there's a vilification right now of truck drivers, whether you're talking about Canadian truck drivers or you're talking about American truck drivers. You may have heard that there is, there's a couple of potential uh, Freedom Convoy-style protests that are planned. One would be beginning in California and working its way to D.C. There's been talk about that for a while, but I don't think they're talking about doing that until sometime later next month. There's another group, and I'm, I'm not sure who these people are. I don't know if it's a legitimate group or if it's a false flag type of situation. But there's another group that's talking about taking over the um, Washington, D.C. Beltway, the expressway system that, that circles Washington, D.C., getting people and goods and services in and out and having a protest on that. On that uh, it's kind of like the 610 loop on, uh, on that particular piece of roadway to kind of bring things to a halt. They sound, they sound more aggressive. They, they sound more militant. It makes me wonder who they are and if, if, if it's just another group of truckers who are a little bit more intense or if it's something else at work here, like an inside job. Because, you know, already they're, they're boarding up Washington, D.C. ahead of the State of the Union address. They're calling out all the security. They're, they're, they're putting up their fences again like they did after January the 6th. Maybe they just want to make it look like there's another insurgency that's going on because this government needs a bad guy. They need somebody to blame. They don't have Trump to blame anymore, so they have to find somebody else to blame. And right now, it's kind of looking like truckers are going to be the bad guys. At least that's what uh, Kaylee McEnany thinks. Here's what she said about Biden's bad guy truckers. President Biden must have a foil. Um, in other words, the guy in the basement needs a bad guy. Um, no one voted for President Biden because they thought he had mental acuity. They thought he had grand plans and a vision for the nation. We didn't really even know his plan because he was in the basement most of the time. People <laughs> voted on Basement Boy because they just decided they didn't like mean tweets. So this is very important context to say, you know, in 2016, he had Trump as a foil. Right now, he doesn't have that. And I really hope he does not try to make these U.S. truckers uh, the bad guy, because that will be disastrous. I don't want to see our country go the way of Ottawa, where I follow the Ottawa police who who say, you know, hey, there's going to be financial repercussions for these protesters. We're going to find you. You're at an unlawful protest and just merely your presence. You could be arrested. I really hope we don't get to that place in the United States. 
I do, too. Also, on vilifying the truckers, here is former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee. I hope people will remember every time they reach for something on their grocery store shelves or they go and pick up a package on their doorstep that Amazon delivered, there was a trucker involved. If it hadn't been for the truckers, the economy would have shut down far more than it even did during COVID. They were hailed as the heroes of 2020 and 2021. Now they're being vilified and it's shameful. And and what is it that they really want? They just want to be free. Uh, these are not anti-vaxxers. You know, the great majority of the truckers in Canada were vaccinated, but they didn't like the draconian rules that uh, Mr. I-know-everything, Justin Trudeau, the little tyrant up in Canada, uh, tried to impose upon them. So I hope that when the truckers of America make their way across the country, uh, hopefully they'll do it peacefully, they'll do it in an orderly way, but I hope they do it loud and clear and let Washington know that there's not two classes of Americans, the elites and the rest of us. It can't be that way. And that's what the truckers are trying to say in Canada, and I think they'll be saying it in America as well. I just want to see what this administration does about it. I want to see if they go all Justin Trudeau. I want to see if they call out the National Guard or if they, if they uh, you know, send out SWAT teams. I want to see how they handle this. And how, by the way, American police, who are asked perhaps to participate, how they handle this. Do, do we have police departments? Does the Washington, D.C. Police Department want to round up protesting truckers, impound their vehicles? By the way, I think the, uh, the mayor of Ottawa said, yeah, well, we, we should sell these, these trucks. We should sell these trucks and we should use the money to, to compensate us for you know, the expense we had in securing the city. So they're talking about confiscating these truckers' livelihood. They have frozen accounts. It, it, it's, it, it is just really quite amazing. Um, here is, by the way, um, the full cooperation from the Ottawa Police Department. Here's what the Ottawa Police said about the truckers, and here's a little bit of a trucker who had his bank account seized. If you are involved in this protest, we will actively look to identify you and follow up with financial sanctions and criminal charges. Absolutely. This investigation will go on for months to come. And truckers who have not been arrested are dealing with the fallout of frozen bank accounts and seized assets. They've uh, they've taken my truck. I don't know where it is. On Friday, they uh, locked up my personal and trucking business accounts. And also, we have another business, and they locked that account up, too. And it had nothing to do with it. They locked up all of his accounts. Word has it that they locked up the account of a a grandmotherly type who donated $50, evidently, online to the truckers. So they're going after people they can identify as donors to that cause. They're freezing their assets, too. Wow. Now, I know, you know, Canada is not the United States. I, I get it. I understand that. But I hope the Canadian people realize just how close to tyranny they really are. I, I, I know they're not as free as Americans have been, but they're, they were a lot freer than they are right now. Here's Jesse Waters. I told you a little bit about what he says. But here's Jesse Waters' reaction to Ottawa freezing bank accounts. Unfortunately, Canada has a lot of British DNA in them. They never rebelled against the monarchy like we did here in America. So I think they're more accustomed to king-like rule. And I only say this having been to Canada twice. 
But I, I looked into their legal system, and it's not anything like the freedom we have here. They, they don't take religious liberty as seriously as we do. Their gun control laws are hyper strict. You can't even leave your house with a handgun in Canada. Um, you know that the government runs the health care system over there, and hate speech is a crime. So when we think of things happening in Canada, it's not just like some colder version of America. <laughs> Just to the north. I mean, this is a radically different legal system. So, so we're shocked when they seize assets. Colder, wider. You know, in America, you seize an asset in America it's because you forged some checks or your, you know, your back taxes haven't cleared with the IRS. You donated to a peaceful protest that that would happen anywhere in the in in, nor- in the, the northern hemisphere is crazy. So if America wants to be respected as a beacon of liberty, Geraldo, a shining city <laughs> on a hill. When communist countries do this, when dictators oh, do on. things like this, freeze assets, go door to door, put people in prison for peaceful protests, we speak up, and we should speak up. Yes, we should. And I think we're going to try to. I, I guess the question is, um, who is willing to join the truckers? Who is willing to speak out along with them? Because it's going to have to be... More of a trucker thing. So we now we got the school board moms, and we've got the truckers. Who's next to join that group? Who's next to let them know exactly how we feel about all this stuff? All right. Hey, you're in Texas. What it means to be a Texan. Coming up next, you're on AM 950 KPRC with TPPF, that's Texas Public Policy Foundation's Chuck DeVore. He joins us in a moment here on AM 950 KPRC. You know, we have this conversation every now and again, and I've had it before with our guest from the Texas Public Policy Foundation, Chuck DeVore. And that is, you know, the old saying, don't California my Texas. We worry, we fret, we sit around all the time wondering, are the people who are coming here from California, in particular from California, are they coming here because they want to be Texans or are they bringing their perverse political viewpoints with them? And uh, it's been Chuck's belief for a long time that it's, it's the people who really want to be Texans or at least are more conservative by nature that are fleeing these other states. And they're not coming here because they want to make Texas more liberal. They're coming here because they want more freedom. And evidently, there's a story in NPR reporting that more and more Americans are relocating to areas in general that are more in keeping with their political beliefs. Chuck, welcome back to AM 950 KPRC. This is like talking to Dad, by the way, if your dad was a Texan. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, this this topic, it seems like it's evergreen, right? People are constantly worried, um, and I think for good measure, you know, who are all these people moving in because we have such a great economy and there's so many freedoms here in Texas that other states don't get to enjoy. Uh, but by and large, people self-select. They want to be around other people who think like they do. And uh, and so I think that pretty much applies you know, all over the country. If you're more left-wing, progressive, you're going to look at California, New York. That's where you want to go. Uh, if you're more conservative, Texas looks pretty attractive. So does Florida. Are there are there any exceptions there though, Chuck? And in in Austin is what comes to mind. You know, you sure. uh, we've had a lot of jobs created in Austin. Austin is a very liberal city. Um, I would think that it would be a pretty easy transition to go from California to Austin, and plenty of people have. 
So are we are, are we maybe allowing you know some of these more liberal enclaves? Are they not growing along with the rest of the state? Yeah, I think there's a, a few important things to understand. First of all, uh, all across the entire country, it's a trend in every major urban area that the major urban areas that are not very attractive for married couples or children, uh, where you have to be a professional, a lot of college education, and of course, college is more and more left-wing these days. And what you see all across the country in states blue and red is that the major urban areas continue to become more left-wing, while the suburbs and rural areas um, don't. Okay, so that's factor number one. Factor number two, Austin, uh, I don't know if you, if you haven't seen this, it's been a pretty liberal city for quite some time, right? You've got UT Austin, so you've got all those liberal college professors and, and students. You've got all those government employees uh, and yes, you have the tech community. Now, when the tech community hires more and more, a lot of those hires are from within the state. They're not necessarily people moving from Silicon Valley to Austin. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, again, urban areas all over the country are hewing to the left. Uh, the last factor that is of interest to me, and we've done polling on this, is that people who move to Texas from other states tend to be more conservative than Texans. People who move to Texas from other countries, especially south of the border, tend to be more liberal than Texans uh, when they become citizens and are able to vote. And so you have to make a distinguishment between people who are moving here from other parts of the country and people who are moving here from abroad. Uh, And you'll see a pretty stark ideological division between those two groups. Well, that certainly would support the idea of, of the open border policy of this administration, would it not? That it, we, we, it's not good enough to, to take care of Hispanics here in this country because, unfortunately, the longer they're here, the more conservative they seem to be becoming. We need to import new Hispanic liberals. Well, and, and again, that depends on where they come from and how long they've been here, uh, and uh, even within a country. So, for example, Mexico is a pretty diverse place, and there are states in Mexico that are represented by the equivalent of the Democrats or even further to the left. And there are states in Mexico that have traditionally voted uh, for the Mexican equivalent of the Republican Party. And people from those states tend to immigrate to certain places in the country. So it's true that Texas has typically gotten immigration from places in Mexico that are more conservative. California's gotten immigration from places in Mexico that are more left-wing. Now, maybe that'll begin to change as the drug cartels increase their control, uh, de facto control over most of Mexico. Uh, But that's the way it's been historically. So you have to have a certain amount of granularity and and, and look at it. For example, a lot of the people coming here from Venezuela, even though the administration's opening them, you know, welcoming them with open arms, they're a little more right of center because they've seen how spectacularly socialism has failed in their own country. They're, They're a lot like Cubans in that regard. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, to, to get back for a second, though, for the country mouse versus the city mouse, I think I think that is true now in virtually every state in America, where the urban areas are all uh, predominantly left, uh, Democrat and, and, and liberal, um, and the rural areas are predominantly Republican. If you were to look at an overall map of this country, it would be hugely red, except you'd see these big concentrations of blue. But that's where the big population centers are which is why they're able to control things in these cities so well. So I guess the question becomes, is there an answer for, I don't know, more diversity as it relates to our bigger cities? 
Well, I think that what you're seeing is uh, people eventually wake up to what doesn't work. Look at what just happened in San Francisco with this remarkable recall of three extremely left-wing members of the San Francisco School Board in arguably the most left-wing major city in the country. Uh, And they were recalled because their policies didn't work. They were incompetent. They were so ideological and so left-wing that the things that they did harmed the education of the children that they were supposed to be helping. And so I think that as time goes on and as the murder rate goes up and and crime in general uh, gets bad and homelessness and the cost of housing, people are going to look at this and say, wait a minute, this isn't working. You know, some of those people are going to move to the suburbs or more rural areas, which you can do now because of uh, working virtually, and hopefully they'll have a few lessons that they learned when they moved, like, gee, that didn't work well. Maybe I should uh, vote for different people next time. You know, it's funny. I'd like to think we're all capable of learning lessons. I know you're not a native Texan, and you know I'm not a native Texan. I was born and raised in Michigan, and I think the Midwestern states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, are all perfect examples of this. They vacillate back and forth. They'll vote for a Democrat, for governor, then they'll vote for a Republican, then they'll vote for a Democrat, then they'll vote for a Republican. And the, and the cycle continues over and over and over again and i don't know what the i don't know what the problem is there i don't know if they if they don't remember the you know the lessons they're supposed to learn from their past votes i don't know if we have too many middle of the road not conservative enough republicans in these midwestern states what do you think the issue is in those places well first of all it's really important to understand that politics is not static and in our uh, two-party system uh, nation you know, we don't have this proportional representation parliament like you have in England or Germany or Israel. Uh, it's pretty much binary. Uh, one side or the other is going to win most of the time. And as a result, the parties historically are pretty centrist. In other words, compared to other nations, they're constantly trying to figure out how to get 50% plus one. How do we get just enough to win? And so the parties are always repositioning themselves and always looking for an advantage and so I'm not sure necessarily if it's, a, uh, if it's an issue specific to those states, uh, but rather just the political process. Uh, you know, this is competition. Uh, if, if you lost the last time as a, a major party, Democrat or Republican, you're going to try to look at why you lost and try to adjust uh, your policies and see if you can do better the next time. Uh, one of the interesting things about AOC and the current progressive wave of the National Democratic Party, though, is that they are so hewed to their ideology that they're going to uh, probably go down with the ship uh, because they, they're not going to want to change, and, and they're going to continue to do that until the majority of Democrats say, you know, guys, why don't you, uh, why don't you move to the back of the room because this isn't working for us. Yeah, well, I hope you're right about that. I would like, I would like to see, you know, in, in some ways, I would like to see the more liberal parties work their way more towards the middle it doesn't it doesn't feel like we're in a in the middle situation anymore although i think we're finding out um that mainstream america the real mainstream america is still very much centrist when it comes to most things aren't they well certainly uh the people who um live their everyday lives and and don't necessarily uh, you know try to share everything with the whole world i think the challenge that we have is that our institutions have largely been captured by the elite on the left. So you can say that certainly about entertainment. You can certainly say that about big tech. Uh, you know, the, there, there are 
key sectors of uh, journalism where uh, the people who run the show are almost uniformly on the left. And those are very consequential and very uh, important um, entities that have been pushing the nation as a whole to the left incrementally over time. Uh, And so the challenge, of course, uh, becomes, does this really work for a nation? Is this really healthy for society and for America? I don't think it is over the long term. And I think a lot of Americans understand that. And that's why, for example, you see uh, the credibility of the media at all-time lows. Uh, I think right down there with used car salesmen. I mean, at least with a used car salesman, you might come away from the transaction with an actual car. Good point to make, sir. Always good to talk to you. Thank you, fellow Texan Chuck DeVore. Thank you. We'll see you later. Chuck DeVore joining us here on AM 950 KPRC. Final segment for today coming up next. Stick around. Jimmy Baird Show here on AM 950 KPRC. going on today in uh, in Europe? I don't know. What's anything going on in the Ukraine? We still got Russian troops in the eastern part of Ukraine. I think we do. In the meantime, uh, I guess we're going to have some sanctions. I don't know. I don't know. It's a one-trick pony in dealing with uh, in dealing with Russia and Vladimir Putin. I saw I saw a story where basically they call Russia the world's largest gas station, and that's all it is. It's all they've got. It's the only economy they have. So, you know, the, the the only way to deal with Russia is to cut them off as far as their ability to 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 trade with trade oil. I mean, they, they can trade with China. There's not there's nothing we can do about that. Um, you know, with the whole pipeline thing to Germany. I mean, shut all that stuff down. Except the Germans don't like freezing to death. Evidently, that's a problem in the wintertime in Germany. But Germany has done it to themselves. They've made themselves dependent on Russia in order to be able to heat their homes in the winter, to provide electricity, to provide natural gas. It's, it's the only thing they've got. They're not producing it on their own. They've shut down their own you know, electric factories there in the name of the environment. <laughs> and they've made themselves extremely weak and vulnerable. And so what was our, what was our answer, by the way, to, to, uh, to, to Biden... You know, threatening war in Europe. Oh, we send our border czar, Kamala Harris. Yeah, and, and, and she's just, I mean, she's a real wordsmith. I mean, take a listen to what she said about potential war in Europe and see if there's any there there. I mean, listen, guys, we're talking about the potential for war in Europe. I mean, let's really take a moment to understand the significance of what we're talking about. It's been over 70 years. And through those 70 years, as I mentioned yesterday, there has been peace and security. We are talking about the real possibility of war in Europe. So our position is for us very clear, which is as a leader, which we have been bringing together the allies, working together around our collective and unified position, that we would all not just prefer, we desire, we believe. It is in the best interest of all that there is a diplomatic end to this moment. I'm listening to that and I'm thinking, she sounds like Dana Carvey on the old Saturday Night Live doing an impression of George H.W. Bush. A thousand points of light, you know? 
what what is she saying? Is there a policy in there somewhere? I, I don't think that I don't think there's a policy in there anywhere. So what is she doing over there other than embarrassing herself? Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, by the way, who not only is a Democrat but also his military background. Here's Tulsi on Kamala's appearance in Europe. My gosh, this is embarrassing. It's, it's hard to keep track of all of those jumbles of words. And it's clear that she was sent there uh, to be the voice of the United States as a purely political calculation. You and I both know she has no foreign policy background, no foreign policy understanding. She has no concept of the cost of war, nor does she have the temper temperament necessary to be the voice of the United States on the global stage. So it's embarrassing to see this play out. I want to talk about the two examples uh, that you raised there where she talked about deterrence and sanction. How do you you deter someone by punishing them before they do it? Uh, It's it's very simple. This is kind of like grade school understanding, where if you say, I'm going to punish you before you do something, wouldn't a kid say, okay, fine, well, I might as well go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, this, this is not rocket science here. And, and secondly, talking about incurring cost. And this one hits very close to home because Kamala Harris and Joe Biden have both said, you know what, we are going to incur a cost. They're not going to pay the price. They're multi, multi-millionaires, both of them. The, the power elite are not going to be negatively impacted by this continued uh, escalation. You know who will pay the price? It is hardworking Americans all across our country. Yeah, how much did you pay for your last fill-up? I filled up. When did I fill up? Yes, it was yesterday. How quickly I forget. $3.09 per gallon. And um, as long as I've lived in Texas, which has been a little while now, I have never paid $3 a gallon for gasoline. Which is not to say it's never happened before. It has. But, you know, the price is going to continue to rise based on what we're seeing. And inflation in general is going to continue to rise. All right, one more little quick little topic for you here. We haven't done anything on Omicron or COVID vaccine. I heard today that evidently there is a plan under works to have the COVID vaccine a once a year like a flu shot, right? And that there's a plan in place to require Americans to get it. Yeah, require Americans to get it. I don't know about you. I did shot one. I did shot two. After I saw that we're offering the same old shot for the boosters, um, I didn't. I haven't gotten a booster shot, just like I haven't gotten a flu shot. You know, that's my decision uh, to make about whether or not I need or want to get a flu shot. And that's exactly where we're going here with the, with the COVID vaccine. It, it's a flu shot when you get right down to it. And it's a flu shot, honestly, that hasn't been updated yet, unlike the regular flu shot. So... They're actually talking about requiring that on a yearly basis? That, yeah, nobody's going to go for that. Um, anyway, the other thing is is that the CDC, who, 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 who the big tech you know, keeps trying to fight so-called COVID misinformation, well, the misinformation is really coming for the CDC. Dr. Scott Jensen and Dr. Husman Hamadi say we need to wake up. They, they, they have been... They have been giving us a limited, the CDC, a limited amount of information on COVID. Take a listen. The bottom line is Americans really need to wake up. They've been fed a limited amount of information, and this is as much an intrusion of their rights as if they were inappropriately incarcerated. This is one branch of the federal government that is not up 
to be politicized. We can politicize other things. I'm fine with that. We can't politicize public health. It should be off limits to anything political, anything that's influenced by unions, by political parties, by corporations, by any outside factors. This needs to be the one federal agency that is completely and totally guided by science, by fact, and by nothing else. And two years into the pandemic, like you said, we have so much scientific fact. We have reams and reams of medical data, not from hundreds or thousands of people worldwide, billions of people worldwide. In fact, the entire world population, there's never in history been any right. more medical information than this. And for the, for the CDC to curate the data and tell us that certain data that they have are not ready for prime time is as outlandish as Eric Garcetti, the L.A. mayor, when he said he was holding his breath uh, for that photograph <laughs> at the football game. It's unbelievable. Basically, any piece of information they have about the veracity of the vaccine and masking as far as that goes and whether it works or doesn't work, they don't seem to have the data to share with us. And I think there's a reason behind that. It's the same reason we do not get a release on the number of people coming across the border illegally. They don't want us to know. All right, you have a great evening. I'll see you tomorrow morning, bright and early with Share at 5 a.m. on News Radio 740 KTRH, and then we're back here at 4 on AM 950 KPRC.